The Scream Kings are in no way responsible for any encounters with the paranormal, extraterrestrial abductions, eldritch insanity, hauntings, curses, hexes, demonic possessions, cryptozoological sightings, or any loss of sleep that results from listening to this podcast. King's podcast. I'm Nathaniel Darkish. And this is Max George. No! I'm a podcast star! Please! I'm a star! Please, somebody help me! Please help me! Help me! Wow, am I interviewing Mia Goth? Oh yes, that was such a drop-in performance. (laughs) Not to tease you, Nathaniel. You have sleeping children in your home. Yes, otherwise I would have committed and uh, tears would be shed by our audience from how moving of a performance that that would have been. If you have not guessed it yet, we are talking about Pearl this episode and the beauty that is Mia Goth. Yes, but it's not all we're talking about. Uh, We are also going to be talking a little bit about the Horror Writers Association and the Stoker Awards because uh, I recently attended Stoker Con, which is the big Horror Writers Association conference that happens every year, and it was a freaking rad time. Hung out with lots of my homies in the horror community, shamelessly pitched my book, got some good contacts there. And, you know, just had a, a wonderful time and, and actually learned some things about the Horror Writers Association that I thought was uh, interesting and maybe might be uh, of interest to our listeners. I, I feel like part of this episode is just me going to be going, go to hell. Go to hell, Nathaniel. Go to hell. Because <laughs> you had some amazing experiences. I'm quite jealous. Uh, this is a once in a lifetime kind of a thing. I know you've been more than a few times, right? Was this your second or third? Yeah, time? this is my second. Okay, cool. Well, I'm already set to go next year. So, yeah, I, I mean, you had some incredible updates to give me from across over here in Utah. So, yeah, uh, yeah. So this most recent one was in Pittsburgh. It was a good time. Uh, you know, since Pittsburgh is where. Uh, George Romero was was working for uh, Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. We had some people from like the George Romero Foundation there. Uh, you know, there was some some moving tributes to him and his work. Um, and yeah, like Pittsburgh is pretty cool from the little I saw of it when I briefly ventured outside of the convention center, and just had a great time. Like. The, the the great thing is the Horror Writers Association is, and, and just like horror writers and, and people in the horror community in general are just cool people, right? Like, it's it's just such like a positive, uplifting atmosphere. You know, everyone's supporting each other, everyone's cheering each other on, and you don't always see that in, in you know, professional communities like this, and uh, 
it was just a freaking delight. You know, it's everyone's approachable. You know, people who have won a gazillion awards and you know are are some of the biggest names in in the genre are totally happy to sit and chat with you if you come up to them and just say, hey, I I just wanted to say I love your work, and they're like, oh, well, you know, what what are you working on? And it's it's great. It's it's a magical time, and I think our horror community is just a special thing. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like we've experienced that a little bit here with the podcast on social media, even. Oh, yeah. Where, you know, Hollywood, I think, kind of gets this bad rap, especially the, the horror community. You know, we're not all, you know, occult-following, devil-worshipping weirdos. And even the um, ones that do do those things are usually pretty nice people. Exactly. That's that's kind of the crazy thing. Crazy, you know, maybe not being the best adjective. But I don't know, with with just seeing what we've seen with Instagram and Twitter and Facebook even, like the horror community is pretty close-knit and we protect one another, which is pretty cool. Especially this, yeah. you know, in 2023... It's kind of a crazy world out there. It definitely is, and I feel like, if anything, it's just become a more uh, inclusive and supportive space, and, and the people who try to not be that just kind of get kicked out of the community, which is, is good. So tell so, us more about the con. Um, oh, God, where, where did it even begin? <laughs> um, I mean, you know, it, it was panels, it was discussions, it was... Uh, there were pitching events. There was a dealer's room uh, where I bought a wonderful cross stitch uh, that had a, a quote from uh, Where the Wild Things Are, uh, I'll Eat You Up, I Love You So. But then around it, it had death, head moths, and skulls to make it you know, tie into Silent Hill. So Truly uh, beautiful. Yes, I, I was very happy with that. Um, you know, friend of the show, uh, Willow. Uh, Willow Becker, uh, of where Little Worlds Press had a had a a book that was up for an award, uh, an anthology that she uh, co-edited, and that one ended up not winning, but it was still a really cool time to to cheer her on. Uh, but yeah, so there was the uh, awards. Uh, one night there was a short film festival uh, with some really fun. Uh, you know, ranging from creepy to to very you know fun horror comedy shorts. Uh, I don't know. It's just it's it's a and, party all the time. Uh, you sent me a few pictures of Willow. Some of her kind of um marketing. I don't know banners. Let's say mm-hmm. had a quote from our episode with her, which was amazing. Yeah, yeah. People are are now referring to us. To help them sell their their goods and or services, like mind blown. That's a that, uh, ooh, uh, don't get me started on that one. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. So that was freaking rad. Um, I don't know. Just everyone's hanging out, having a good time. Um, so I guess before I get into kind of the awards themselves, because that's gonna be sort of my focal point on this segment, uh, I do just want to talk a little bit about like the origins of the HWA uh, since it really hasn't been around for that long uh, it's 38 years old uh, as a professional organization when you know some of these other uh, 
uh, writing guilds and stuff like that have been around for, you know, 80, 90 years. Uh, it's a, a relatively young uh, organization, but it uh, has some cool origins. Um, so originally, uh, the Horror Writers Association was actually known as Howl, the Horror and Occult Writers League. And frankly, I like that name even better. But I was I was gonna say, uh, what happened? That's badass. I know, right? <laughs> like, I I I kind of want them to go back to it. I mean, yeah, like horror writers associations, kind of more straightforward and and easy to understand what it is to an outsider. But to be in the community and be like, yeah, I'm in Howl, the horror and occult writers league. Yeah, that's yeah. like. That's like the horror version of the Avengers. I love that. Right? <laughs> um, and and then, you know, kind of knowing some of the origins is, is really interesting because I guess, uh, and, and a lot of this is actually coming from a speech uh, by the legendary writer Joe Lansdale, uh, who is a, a nearly mythical figure in the, in the horror writing pantheon. He, he uh, attended the, the conference uh, for just part of it, uh, partially to be able to uh, accept an award for his wife, uh, Karen Lansdale, who has Alzheimer's. Um, and basically, the, the award, which is now named after Karen Lansdale, uh, was kind of like uh, for someone in the community uh, for, like, you know, doing service within the community. And, and basically, she kind of got this ball rolling. I, uh, apparently, the Lansdales and like Robert McCammon and maybe even Dean Koontz were all hanging out at like a it was either like World Fantasy Con or World Con or something like that, uh, which you know usually has a small little niche uh, carved out for for the horror folks. Uh, but they were all hanging out there, and these are all you know huge names in in uh, especially like the eighties uh, horror world. They were hanging out and saying, like, hey, I wish we had a, an organization. And then, apparently, Karen Lansdale just went, okay, I'll make it happen. And so she just got contact information for as many horror writers as she could find and started making up, an, uh, like, a newsletter and kind of formed this organization. And then it uh, kind of became more formal uh, within a, a year or so. And then uh, Dean Koontz uh, became the first president of uh, the Horror Writers Association. Uh, and then, you know, shortly after that, they began giving out the Bram Stoker Awards. Uh, which, yeah, the first batch of awards were for the writing year of 1987. And it's just been going strong ever since, and, and I think keeps getting more and more uh, interesting and diverse and, and worthwhile as time goes on. So is, um, you know, excuse my ignorance here, of course, but is this strictly for authors and screenwriters and kind of the the literary side of horror or do you get you know movie directors and producers and and stuff like that as well here so so this is because it is a writing organization it really is kind of on the the writing side of things so yeah like as far as like film or or tv writing goes there are there is a category uh, in the Stoker Awards for screenwriting, uh, but like for the most part, the organization and most of the awards are kind of more focused on short stories and novels and 
things along that vein. You know, there's there's poetry awards and things like that, and, and there's, that seems to be much more of the focus of the organization. So someone on the outside, like, say I would go, of course I would recognize a few names because I I read horror literature here and there, and, you know, I'm obsessed as well. Mm -hmm. um, but someone outside of the literary world, would they fully appreciate what's going on there? I, I worry that if I were to go, maybe I wouldn't fully understand or appreciate all of the content around me just because I'm not part of that specific niche of our, our genre. Yeah, so I would say StokerCon is really mostly, you know, for writers. You know, most of the panels are going to be looking at uh, effective storytelling, uh, you know, getting published, things along those lines. And, and, you know, a lot of times it'll be like, hey, like, let's look at how haunted houses uh, are evolving uh, in, in terms of the storytelling over the last 20 years. And and like there'll be a, a panel about that, and so like there certainly like an outsider uh, could look at at these discussions and things like that and go like oh yeah like I I've seen it with this thing and this thing and this thing but you know I, I I'd say in terms of talking craft like it's going to be a little bit more jargony and and stuff like that to uh, outsiders. But that said, as far as the awards themselves go, like a lot of times these are you know some of the best of the best. Uh, you know, pretty much anything that's nominated for a Stoker Award is probably worth picking up uh, just to be, you know, if not necessarily the most exciting and groundbreaking horror, at least, like, interesting, uh, compellingly written horror that is doing something that's that's worth taking a look at. And so uh, I'll go over who won for this year, but before I do that, I can kind of give you some examples of, like, books uh, that have won Stoker Awards just kind of for some context because you know especially when it comes to you know this being you know public or you know printed on the on future editions of the book you know stoker award-winning author or stoker award-winning novel these are the kinds of things that uh that people might be pointing to as far as like notable works and notable writers who have won them <clears throat> all right so for example uh misery by stephen king Swan Song by Robert McCammon, Silence of the Lambs uh, hmm. by Thomas Harris, Boy's Life by Robert McCammon, Carrying Comfort by Dan Simmons, American Gods by Neil Gaiman, Sue McKee by Stephen King, The Fisherman by John Langan, Head Full of Ghosts and Cabin at the End of the World, uh, both by Paul Tremblay, uh, Air Rap by Christopher Golden, The Only Good Indians, and uh, by, by Stephen Graham Jones, The Lovely Bones, The Cipher, Ghost Road Blues, Heart Shaped Box. Like, all of these are, are like, big, notable horror novels, uh, many of which are, you know, at least quite popular to outsiders. You know, I would say at least half of those people will at least be able to kind of recognize by title if, if they're not in the horror world. But if you're in the horror world, yeah, these are all, like, must-reads. Yeah, I mean, they're iconic, iconic. Movies, books, whatever you want to call it, you can't beat that lineup you just gave. Yeah, and and so you know what's what's cool is that like I, I like that there is a variety of writers represented there just with those novels, but you know it's not just novels. You know there are uh, awards for here. Let me read all the categories. 
Uh, so there's novel, first novel, so, you know, an author's debut novel is going to be not up against someone's 15th book. Um, then there's young adult novel, graphic novel, long fiction, so like a novella, uh, short fiction, anthology, fiction collection, so that'd be just by a single author, uh, a poetry collection by a single author, uh, nonfiction, short nonfiction, so a single essay, uh, screenplay, and lifetime achievement. And then they also just recently added uh, middle grade uh, as of this year. So, you know, a, a wide variety of, of types of writing represented. And yeah, so... I Sorry, after just describing that, I really appreciate that they have a category for, like, first novels. Hmm. You know, they're, Stephen King, of course, has billions of novels. It would be silly to to put him up against someone who is writing for the first time yeah and like of course like stephen king is the person who holds the record because uh you know dude puts out two or three books a year and a lot of them are bangers not all of them but a lot of them are and so he he's had uh 33 nominations and 13 wins which you know that's that's a, a hefty bunch of awards but you know a lot of times we don't see him appearing on the ballot year after year after year. You know, he is, I, I feel like, you know, for the most part, like he has been recognized many times for all of the wonderful writing he's doing, but then it also kind of, uh, the awards tend to give more space to new voices or, or rising voices in the horror world. But yeah, so you want to hear, about the winners uh this this year eh, i'll pass oh okay well you know <laughs> keep going all right uh so uh in long fiction uh the werewolf by amakatsu uh short fiction was mercedes m yardley uh, a short story called fracture which incidentally is from uh our friend willow's uh co-edited mother tales of love and terror so uh, that is still an awesome win uh, for that book. Uh, for Fiction Collection, uh, Cassandra Kaw's Breakable Things. Uh, be uh, best screenplay was a tie between The Black Phone and uh, Stranger Things uh, episode 401, uh, The Welcome to, or sorry, The Hellfire Club. Uh, poetry Collection, it was Cynthia Paleo, uh, the books called Crime Scene. Uh, best Anthology was Ellen Datlow, uh, Dreams of the Dark Nine Tales of Monsters and the Monstrous. Then we have Tim Wagoner for nonfiction, his book Writing in the Dark, the Workbook. There is Lee Murray's uh, essay, uh, I Don't Read Horror and Other Weird Tales. Uh, for middle grade novel, Daniel Krauss won with They Stole Our Hearts. Uh, Robert Piatone uh, won uh, for the YA category, so the, uh, with the book The Triangle. Uh, best first novel was Christy Noble's Eula. And uh, best novel is Gabino Iglesias with The Devil Takes You Home. And, like, this. This year was kind of a historic year because uh, those are two uh, 
people from the the Latino community uh, who won, and that's they're the first Latinos to win Stoker Awards. And so it gets more diverse every year, and I think uh, the the writing that's represented just keeps getting more and more interesting and exciting. Yeah, that's awesome. That's kind of an eclectic kind of spread of horror, I think. You know, you, it's cool to see something like an, an episode of Stranger Things being competing against a, a cinematic movie like Black Phone. I don't know, that, that's pretty cool. Yeah. There's someone on the outside looking in. Oh, I think I forgot one. There's also uh, James Act Alone for Breath Bubble, Kolchak, Night Stalker, 50th Anniversary. Which I don't know much about Kolchak the Night Stalker other than it was a show back in the seventies, I think eighties. I have no idea. Yeah, I hear Night Stalker and I think of the movie, but it sounds like this is something else. Yeah, it was like some sort of detective show with a supernatural twist. I think I don't know anything about it, which is probably embarrassing to half of our. Listeners going, wait, they don't know Kolchak? I know. What sorry. Dude, sorry, it, sorry, sorry, sorry. If, if uh, <laughs> we should remedy that, tell us. Please do. All right. So, yeah, the, the Stoker Awards are really cool. Um, I think a lot of times people don't realize that there are these kinds of awards that go, go around for, for these books. It's a great way to you know, pick out your next read uh, other than just you know wading into the uh, rarely existent horror sections at Barnes and Nobles or in the libraries, which again, a lot of Barnes and Nobles and libraries just put them in with general fiction. Yeah, it can be hard to find like a, a good horror novel to read. And so, looking at uh, you know who has won uh, Stoker Awards or, or who has been nominated for Stoker Awards, could be a great place to to start looking for your next read, whether that's uh, a short story collection or a novel or whatever. Uh, I, I can say that the ones that I've read from this list, uh, which is only a handful, uh, were all really good. Uh, of course, most of the notable winning work, works that I mentioned earlier I have read. But, but yeah, from this year, I now have uh, a bunch of books cut out for me to, to read for next. Well, and some awesome uh, possible guests on the podcast that we will be able to interview and kind of learn about their creative prowess as well. Uh, yeah, I've I've maybe become friends with some of these people, and uh, maybe we'll uh, see see some really cool guests coming up very soon. Woohoo! So, you want to talk about Pearl? Oh, let's shift gears and talk about this psychotic film. Yes. <laughs> Please, Lord, make me the biggest star the world has ever known, so that I'll make it far, far away from this place. Now, caring for your family during these times is admirable. But you only get one take at this life. If only they would just die. Pardon? Nothing. Peter! I want to be special. Dancing up on the screen like the pretty girls in the pictures. I promise. I will not let you leave this farm again. I'm worried there may be something real wrong with me. Uh, so, Pearl was 
also up for the Stoker, but did get beat out by the Black Phone and uh, that episode of Stranger Things. But, you know, I figure I also uh, recognize it here. It was that first Stoker, which is still really freaking rad. Yeah, I honestly think it was one of the, the better horror films to come out of 2022. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really enjoyed X, and I think Pearl delivered on a whole different kind of game to some extent we'll kind of dive into the minutiae there uh however it is of course directed by the great ty west and mia goth actually i read a little snippet earlier today that they came up with the idea for pearl while they were both quarantining for two weeks after a covid scare um which if that doesn't say you know the fallout of 2020 i don't know what does (laughs) but yeah yeah uh so yeah mia goth and ty west then co-wrote the uh, screenplay uh, and by West directed. The plot itself is actually relatively simplistic. You you have Pearl, who's played by Mia Goth, of course, who's really this sexually repressed character. She lives in this family where her parents really uh, kind of verbally abusive, possibly physically abusive, um, and all she wants to do, of course, is be a movie star. It's kind of the onset of the great Hollywood era you know the 20s 30s 40s the mgm years perhaps we can call them and so she she dreams of stardom but nathaniel what happens uh well things don't go according to plan so she is increasingly uh controlled by her mother uh and has to help take care of her uh badly uh invalid father uh and this is all I, uh, tied to like the the big flu epidemic of of teen twenty twenty one thereabouts that uh, you know was the the one hundred year cycle of of epidemics. So so yeah, basically she has to spend more and more time taking care of her father and helping take care of the farm. But then she meets uh, a man in town who. Uh, is a projectionist at the local movie theater, and he kind of is trying to like sweep her off her feet, even though it turns out she is married and uh, is married to a soldier who was fighting in World War One. So she's kind of trying to decide between do I pursue what is in front of me, you know, both stardom and also potentially this uh, romance, or do I let you know the the decisions of my parents and the decision I made, you know, a few years ago by getting married and all of that rule my life. And so she kind of has to choose between those, and she uh, makes some very bloody decisions. <laughs> As an excellent way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of this weird spiral into madness. Uh, I loved it. I think it was this awesome and twisted homage to the early kind of movies that we got such as wizard of oz or you know any of the early 20s and 30s films from mgm yeah Uh, it the dialogue was very antiquated even the cinematography felt you know paying heritage to this great era of movies but then there was this sinister twist to everything oh yeah absolutely because you know, we, we, we can see that Pearl is a much nastier person than we realize. And so, basically, when things start to not work out her way, 
so so she ends up uh sleeping with that projectionist uh and he is basically like showing her dancing movies and stuff like that and, and so so she can practice but then you know it's really just him trying to seduce her um and then he ends up showing her some old french pornos but they end up having a lot of this this tension uh, of like hey you know maybe maybe they can have a future but maybe he starts to become afraid of her once he kind of kind of sees how intense she is um yeah so over over the course of the next little bit she she totally bombs this uh dance audition she's just not what they're looking for because she doesn't have the right hair color that they're looking for or whatever uh, and then basically uh, goes kind of on this rampage where she kills her lover, kills uh, uh, one of her only friends who is her sister-in-law, uh, and kills uh, both of her parents. And then finally her husband arrives arrives home from, from war to find this scene of carnage, and she's just so overjoyed to see him. Yes, so, so ha- happy, question mark? <laughs> Uh, and we have to give credit right off the bat to Mia Goth. I I was stunned at her ability to kind of just embrace the insanity of this character, Pearl. Um, Mia Goth is a treasure, and I think we're going to see quite more a bit of her in the future. Um, I know she hasn't done a ton of stuff recently. She was in Infinity Pool, this, X, of course, but that girl can tap into some horrific energy. Well, and she'll also be in that third X film uh, scene. Oh, yes. Yes. And I think that is important to remember here is Pearl is in some capacity a sequel to X, more a prequel, I guess, would be a I mean, better they, term. They taglined it as a, an extraordinary uh, origin story. Yeah, essentially Pearl is one of the main antagonists in X, just, you know, years down the road. Many, so, many. <laughs> so it's kind of creating this this cool, I don't know, X-verse, X-multiverse. Uh, I don't even know what to call it. it. We'll see how the trilogy goes once this third film comes out. Yeah, yeah, basically, you know, in, in the uh, original film, uh, she and her husband, who are very old now, uh, are are the the people who are going around slaughtering a bunch of uh young sexy twenty <laughs> somethings who you know are renting some of their property to to make some uh, naughty movies. Yes, and uh, and 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 it, it, a lot of that is I, I think notably stemming from this kind of jealousy that they aren't young and aren't able to have the 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 passion and the energy and the sex and all of that, that that these young people have. And so that kind of comes into this thematically in some very interesting and different ways in this film. Yeah, we do get the kind of that origin story of that hatred of youth in some capacity, or perhaps better stated, the, the hatred of sexual freedom and the ability to express oneself however they wanted. Because the story of Pearl, I will thoroughly argue is is about sexual repression and kind of how it can eat someone up alive yeah though and 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 we'll get 
into this more in, in a few minutes, I'm, I'm sure, but that, that it's, like, in, in this case, a very like, specific sort of repression. But we'll get into that. But, but first, um, I wanted to actually go back to that Wizard of Oz thing. Yeah. Because uh, it's, in many ways, like, almost a weird inverse of the Wizard of Oz story, right? Like, Dorothy wants to get home the whole time, while Pearl wants to leave home so badly she wants to go to oz right yeah and 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 you know we we see that very clearly you know laid out with with this you know kind of iconic scene that they used a lot for the the trailers where she's dancing with and then you know kissing and then uh grinding on this this scarecrow that you know has this very humanoid quality to it and so you know that's uh, very interesting as well that like she wants this other life this this freedom from simplicity of farm life so badly and and we can see that represented through this kind of oz image yeah and so it's this this inverse about you know dorothy goes on this adventure to go home pearl goes on this adventure to go to oz but there's this moment where they both kind of realize that the illusion is that it's an illusion they both can't get what they want you know and dorothy's side it's the wizard of oz is a phony and a fake and you know he doesn't have the capacity to get her where she wants and for pearl it's this dream of stardom all of a sudden is hollow and she's not what everyone wants and these aspirations that she's had fall through her fingers but 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 then she still chooses to live in an unreality, just a different one. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You read my mind there, Nathaniel. And so that I think is where the horror is, is you know, Dorothy kind of accepts what's going on and realizes that she's able to go home herself. And in Pearl's situation, she doesn't accept it. She won't accept it and kind of starts to put that circle peg into a square hole and forces the narrative herself, which of course leads to blood. Oh, so much blood. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, so I thought that was a really cool idea. It, it took something so wholesome as the Wizard of Oz and it really kind of gave it a sinister twist. And watching it in the theater kind of play itself out and not take itself too seriously or try too hard. You know, it, it's gory, it's pretty bloody at parts, but also it's very tame in other parts. It just tells its story, and I really appreciated that. Yeah, and I'll say, like, in terms of levels of violence and stuff, it was relatively tame, even in comparison to its predecessor. Which I, I thought was interesting, that, that, you know, X really was a, a much more violent film in terms of what it showed us. A lot of this kind of happens more or a lot of this film happens more off stage, and we see the results. Yeah, and I think it is kind of playing on that, you know, 30s, 40s movie vibe where hmm. seeing blood on the screen was a huge taboo. And so it, it's able to execute its horror themes without, you know, spraying us with blood, so to speak. Yeah. Um, Mia Goth and her acting is phenomenal. Ugh, I, I know... I've already said it a little bit, but holy cow. Yeah, but, but what I like is that, that it was a, a strong cast all the way through. Like, 
Agreed. Everyone, uh, I thought was was really uh, well cast. The performances were really solid, and so she didn't stand out like a sore thumb in terms of her performance versus like everyone did a really good job of feeling dropped into this very uh, almost weirdly fantasy version of you know the nineteen twenties, but with this weird sinister edge. And I also felt, you know, it, it kind of cast the same shadow as a lot of films around that time period did. You know, it, it reminded me a lot of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Psycho to some extent, where the, the horror isn't so visceral. It's more of that psychological kind of worm in your brain. Mm. Uh, even House of a Thousand Corpses, I know that's not from the same generation at all. Um but kind of that gritty, disturbing, kind of murky horror that... Grindhouse? Yeah, it gets under your skin and just makes you feel uncomfortable. Uh, I was shocked at how well they were able to do it with this wholesome Wizard of Oz kind of filter on. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. I don't think it ever quite gets as far as, yeah, House of a Thousand Corpses. No, no, yeah. But but yeah, you're right. Like, Like, it has... A little bit of that tone, which is surprising with how, yeah, like, 1930s MDM. Yeah, I I mean, Pearl, right off the bat, is very twisted and kind of horrific, but in this subtle way where, as a viewer, you recognize, oh, this girl has, you know, antisocial disorders and she's narcissistic, possibly bipolar, you know, all of these different categories that we can put on her but it's set in this 1930s world where they don't know what that is and you're just kind of watching her journey into madness and it's almost saddening Mm -hmm. because you want to help her but also she's a monster (laughs) and so it's i don't know it's twisted it gets in your brain yeah well and and what i like is that her motivations are things that we can definitely empathize with, right? Like, especially, like, looking at her life and, and going, like, yeah, I wouldn't want to have to take on all of those kinds of responsibilities. Especially considering that, yeah, like, she is a married woman. She shouldn't have to be living at home. But her, but when she got married, she thought she was going to be taken away to a beautiful place with beautiful things and lots of money. and instead. Her husband wanted to stay and be a farmer, and then he went off to be a soldier. And that means that she is stuck in this life that she wouldn't choose for herself. And, like, that kind of thing is horrific, because a lot of people end up stuck in those kinds of situations. And and additionally, you know, that, that we see that, you know, she feels so unfulfilled in her life to the point that... um Really, you know, and and this is kind of getting into that that sexual repression theme. The the thing that she's missing is something that she had and has been taken away from her, again against her will. But you know that that she has to be the perfect you know loving wife from this immense distance for her husband, who went off to war in a war that Americans really didn't have to go f- off and fight. Like very few Americans were involved in World War One. And yet he volunteered and he went off and he's such a good soldier and all that. Like he, he could have not gone and been with her. 
And instead, he took that away from her, and now all she has is the scarecrow in the cornfield. <laughs> yeah, I, I fully agree with kind of your, your approach here in that regard, but I, I also think it goes a little bit further as far as, you know, we're, we're two white males talking here, so yeah, please someone, you know, shut us up when we talk about feminism. Uh, but the morality of sexuality, and especially female sexuality, you know, the, the time that this movie is placed, the, the woman's role was in the home, and Pearl did not fit that mold. She wanted to explore the world and be this superstar that kind of had that autom- autonomy that the women in her life did not have. And especially her mother. Exactly. You know, she was chained to her circumstances and chained to the morality at the time. I think a really interesting point that the movie dissected was when, you know, this boy takes her to the theater and shows her this porno. You know, she's she's disgusted a little bit, but then she's titillated at the possibility that something like this exists. And it's kind of speaking to a part of her that she's had to hide for how many years. And kind of how weirdly poetic that is that this sexual creature is finally being able to express herself through this porn film. Uh, that sounds so twisted to say out loud, but that's the reality of it. You know, I, I thought X was really progressive in its way of kind of talking about sex. And I think Pearl did the exact same thing, but showing it in a different time period. And... I, I was really moved by it. As someone who repressed their sexuality for, you know, 23 plus years, I identified quite a bit with the ability to have something that made you feel seen, even if it felt taboo, hmm. um, which is cool. I, I think we need more of that in the world. Uh, the world is getting bigger with social media and the internet, and we can see more people, and morality is something that is arbitrary depending on your culture and your beliefs and the government around you and it changes Mm. i don't know i just i thought this movie was a really cool way to dissect that and say people in the 30s were still sexual creatures they still craved sex like we do now but they had to do it in different ways and it was looked at differently and the darkness in that to some extent yeah and and i like that that isn't the entire picture as well that it's not just about that it's also just about like who can we be as human beings right like in in this case you know looking at the the story she wants to be a movie star and that would be one avenue to get it but but you know also that 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 she has her dreams be you know, is is very open about those and and how all of those things have been taken away from her more and more and more and and uh, taken away from a lot of these women in this film because of the choices of men in their lives, right? Like you know, that that her husband, you know, goes off to war. Uh, her mother is is shackled to this man who is a total invalid now, and and she had to leave her own home uh, to to. Uh, 
be able to to be safe and and come to America, and and that a lot of her dreams have been destroyed as well. And 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 you know, so we kind of see this like multi generational thing going on where, yes, sex is a big part of that, but it's also about their other desires, their other goals as human beings, and so you know that is one part of a whole, and it's definitely you know I think the most prevalent part of of that whole in terms of how this story approaches this idea. But I love that it does kind of have all of these multifaceted elements that we can kind of look at Pearl not just as who does she want to be, but also who does she not want to be. You know, we see that come through with the fact that, you know, uh, she talks about having relief when she has a miscarriage and things like that, where where we see these roles that are uh, put on on women and some women embrace those and want those things and other ones look at it and, and go, well, this is what the world's dealt me and so this is what I have to do. And so I think that's really fascinating because, yes, like, I, again, the, 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 the sexual component is definitely the biggest part, but I love that this movie do, takes the time to kind of give us this idea in subtle and different ways and, and really gives us a, a clear picture of how this destroys every part of who Pearl is that could have kept her from going cuckoo bananas and murdering everybody. <laughs> but, but, you know, her, her life and the ways that she is restricted ultimately causes her to make a, a fantasy land that she's now and to kill to keep from losing that. Yeah, I, I mean, at the end of the day, I think the true antagonist of the film isn't Pearl, but rather her inability to express who she is. Hmm. Whether that's a sexual being or not a, a wife figure. Uh, well, it's all uh, of those things. Yeah, yeah, exactly what I'm saying here is that she is a full human being. She's not just her sexuality. She's not just motherhood. She's not just wifery, whatever we want to call it. She wants to be a human and experience all the things that you know men at the time were able to experience to some regard. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and I appreciate that this film was willing to give us this multifaceted character because so often stories will reduce someone to a single one of those facets rather than... Well, well and especially women in horror movies, right? Okay. You know, the final girl. We have a whole trope for it where they solely exist to, to push the plot or to, to end the movie. And so having this really was satisfying. Um, and I also really appreciate that, like, everyone's motivations were pretty clear and interesting to us. That, like, you know, the mother who, in in many uh, stories, would be seen as a pure villain character, actually was like a woman who was just for, at her end of at the end of her rope, who was just trying to make the best life that she can for herself and for her family, even though she you know, is not uh, not exactly having the, the best time uh, at doing it. Like, you still empathize with her and understand her as a character, even though Pearl hates her. Yeah, that's a really compelling take on it as well, I think. That when you take a step back, Pearl really is about, you know, the female experience in this time period. 
Pearl wanted to do certain things, but was limited by her environment, as I'm sure her mother was as well. And and her mother says that too. And you know, we don't get obviously as fleshed out, but but we do get little snippets of that. Of like, do you think that this is what I wanted? Do you think that this is what I want to to have to love my whole life? Is this man who can't even talk or stand up or hug hold me or anything like? You know, we we see little bits of that too. Yeah, I, I'm kind of in awe that we've taken a horror movie such as Pearl and made it this, you know, philosophical poetry piece about the female experience. <laughs> well, I think that's that's what's been there the whole time, and that's definitely what I see. I agree. Um, I agree. Ty West and Mia Goth really created something bottle in or lightning in a bottle, so to speak, here. Mm-hmm. Um. So, I and and along those lines, like I, I feel like because we see all of these facets of Pearl and we see all of these beats of the story laid out as they are, this descent into madness doesn't feel forced or cartoonish. You really do buy her her descent into madness more than almost any other film I've seen. Someone starts out a little unhinged, and by the end of it, they're you know killing. Yeah, it feels almost relatable. Like, if you put yourself in her shoes, you would understand, like, yeah, I'd, I would get there, too, to some extent. Maybe not to murder, but it, but, you it know, feels relatable. But chucking a, a goose corpse into a, a alligator's mouth, I looked at that and I went, hashtag mood. <laughs> God. <laughs> Um, I, I also really appreciated its moments of horror. You know, there's this terrifying scene where she gets really into this scarecrow in the middle of the field. You know, she's she's masturbating and she is finally able to express some of these repressed sexual feelings. Um, she's fetishizing this the scarecrow and kind of using him to express these wants and needs. Um, and it's weird, it's twisted, it's creepy, but again, it's it's kind of relatable, and you kind of get it, but then you're sitting there watching it, and you're like, oh, this is making me not feel great, it's kind of gross. Uh, it's just, uh, horror beauty is what it was for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, you also had the, the goose scene on there. Uh, also, you want to talk about it? <laughs> Uh, again, I think it's just this moment of Pearl taking something that was restricting her ability to be happy and kind of taking it and making it her own. Um, the the murder of the goose is, you know, I think everyone hates geese and they're evil and they are monster birds. But the the cinematography here was just really twisted and spooky. Yeah, well, and, and what I like too is that, you know, we as an audience can look at that and go, oh, that's like the, the dark triad, right? Like, that she's farming animals, stuff like that. That's, you know, a, a sign to us, hey, serial killer in the making, because we have sort of the frame of reference that he is a would, would not. Yeah. Uh, you have written down the act scene. Do you want to kind of talk about that a little bit before we wrap up with that famous end credit scene? Yes. Uh, so the act scene. So, um, as as uh, was mentioned when kind of talking summary, 
uh, you know, he wants to uh, become a dancer. She has a audition for this traveling dancing production. Doesn't get it. And, of course, the person who does get it is her sister-in-law. Who's, you know, like her one friend. But, you know, this this girl has, has everything, right? Like, she comes from money, and she has, you know, all of this stuff going for her that Pearl has never had, and, and in fact, really badly wants, but, but didn't ever get because her husband wanted to be a farmer and not go live with his rich family. And so she gets the dance position, not, not because of any skill, but, but really just because she had the right luck. And so she, she doesn't tell Pearl this because Pearl has, you know, this enormous breakdown. You know, she's screaming, you know, I'm a star, I'm a star, as they drag her out. And then uh, she, you know, is taken home. Uh, parents are already dead, but, uh, you know, sister-in-law doesn't know this. I should refer to the sister-in-law uh, by, by the character's name, Mitzi. Uh, so, so yeah, Mitzi doesn't know this. They're they're talking. She finally gets her calmed down, but then she starts to kind of realize that like there's something weird going on. She kind of gets a, a glimpse as to some of the the violence that must have occurred previously, and so she starts going like, or, or well, and then then Pearl says, uh, "You can just say that you got it. Like you know, you don't have to like pretend like you didn't for for my sake. Just." Say you got it. No, I I didn't get the the part, Pearl. Mitzi, tell me the truth. I know you got it. Just say it. Okay, yeah, I got it. But you know, it, it, it's it's no big deal. It it's not going to be that great, and this and that, and and then and so you kind of see like a, a a flip switch in Pearl, and 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 Mitzi sees that too, and suddenly she's afraid of Pearl and afraid of how she's talking. And and you know Pearl is confessing all these bad things that she's done that that she slept with that projectionist and things like that and 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 Mitzi is just getting more and more uncomfortable and so she's just like oh I just remembered I really do have to rush home I'm I'll 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 talk to you soon Pearl and she's trying to like leave and she's like walking to the car and Pearl just silently follows her out and silently picks up an axe. And then, you know, Mitzi <laughs> kind of knows that she's coming behind her, and so she just starts speeding up, and then, you know, she, she takes the axe to her. And just how that whole scene plays out, the tension of that scene was so good. Yes. And then, you know, after the, the crazy murder happens and Pearl loses her mind and everything kind of spirals into chaos, the, the end credit scene is Pearl literally just staring at the camera smiling and poor Mia Goth is just smiling it's not anything sinister it's her really just this huge you know cheek-to-cheek grin going on yeah right. as, as her husband has just come home and has, has seen the bo- uh, bodies of her parents but then you know walks over to see her and she's just oh, honey you're home and then yeah the smile and it's interesting I read earlier that Ty West kind of on a whim never called cut. So poor Mia Goth is just sitting there and smiling like this, isn't knowing what's going on. And you can see a visible tear start to form in her eye. 
Like, it's those this, like subtle emotions. Going. This very uncomfortable scene with her just kind of losing it a little bit, not knowing what's going on, waiting for Ty West to say cut, and he never does. And uh, it's just again, Chef's kiss. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah that that was definitely one of my favorites. So we've talked a lot about the good. Maybe let's go into some stuff we didn't like. Yeah. Um, so I I thought the little romance scene with the theater guy. I understood what they were trying to do, you know, to show some some drama and some maybe conflict with Pearl and her her husband. Uh, it felt a little contrived at parts, and I think. You have a note here that you were a little frustrated with how late they informed us that Pearl was actually married. I, I think that was the problem. Yeah, it's that, like, when, when, when he first is flirting with her, you know, it's, it's pretty late in the game that she's like, oh, I'm married, haha. And, like, how it's delivered, it almost didn't feel convincing. It's almost like, oh, I don't know if I want to go on a date with you, so I'm just going to tell you I'm married is what it seemed like to me. How that scene played out and so then every once in a great while it, it kind of gives us little nuggets about her being married but like i mean i don't know just whenever that they would bring it up he'd be like she'd be like oh yeah he hasn't written in a long time and you're like is dead is this the husband from the you know from x what is this and so i just felt like i i was being I don't know, that, that there was some crucial information that was being withheld for a weirdly long time for no good reason. I, I think I would have understood her as a character and her motivations for doing things a lot better if I had that up front a lot. I think maybe it was partially for the shock of kind of ending the, uh, or, you know, having a, uh, in the scarecrow scene her scream, I'm married, and then still proceeding. But eh, didn't work. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, kind of adjacent to that, I do feel like the pacing struggled a little bit here and there. Um, there were a lot of scenes with Pearl, kind of exploring her world. That just, again, I understood their their narrative purpose, but I just feel like they could have been utilized a little bit better, perhaps shortened some extent yeah i think they could have easily trimmed five or ten minutes just by by cutting some of the walking around scenes down but and i also would have really appreciated seeing more of kind of the parent side of things you know her mom and her relationship how her dad was before you know he became invalid uh, these kind of different thematics that were there with her parents that were hit upon and we we had kind of glimmers of it but i i just wanted a, a little bit more of a taste and and to see what her life was before and why all of a sudden it was just so bad and the the thing is i, I don't think it was that it was all of a sudden so bad it was just that it slowly got slightly worse slightly Worse, slightly worse. Then yeah. Finally, she thought she was going to be free, and then she wasn't. Yeah. And and so, but but like I I agree though. Like the the relationship with the parents, the stuff from the past, 
uh, and also like some of those critical pieces uh, that that we needed to really understand Pearl. A lot of those things were delivered in speeches. You know, we have these big, long speeches from Mom and from Pearl that are like five, six minute long speeches. And look, I I enjoy a good speech every <laughs> once in a while in a movie, but I I feel like we're being told stuff that has been withheld for a long time rather than being shown stuff. And so a lot of those ideas could have come out a little bit more subtly uh, over, you know, dialogue rather than monologue. And, and so, yeah, like that honestly was like probably the biggest sticking point for me is that I, I felt like I was had important information withheld for a long time just so someone could give a dramatic speech later that fills it in. And like stylistically, if we're going for that MGM era, you know, type of film, it makes sense. But in terms of like emotional payoff, I felt like it was kind of cheating. Yeah, I I agree. It it felt. I, I monologues are really powerful, but when you have monologue after monologue after monologue after monologue, and they're all um, about how how their lives are hard. Yeah. Yeah, it starts to, I, I don't care. I, I want to just kind of move on and, and get it over with, right? Yeah. Yeah, I just feel like I would have cared more about the, the truths and complicated things that were revealed if they just gave us a little bit more subtlety in that information. Most of the film has a lot of good subtlety, but those speeches were kind of on the nose in terms of oh and this is why their life sucks and this is why I should feel bad for them yeah. I don't know it's just I, I needed a little bit more that was I, I needed a little bit more show a little less tell which is a weird thing to say about a movie but that is still true <laughs> no I, I agree I think I felt like I knew what they were trying to do, but it just was. You kind of get tired after a while of just hearing this crazy monologue, and it's like, okay, get to the point. Mm. So, um, for our notes, you mentioned that you didn't really fully understand the Wizard of Oz thing. Do you still believe that after our discussion earlier? Yeah, um, I feel like the things that are there are are good. But I feel like it could have either been played with a teeny bit more to kind of make it make sense, or maybe they could have trimmed it back and let this breathe a little bit more on its own. Just because, like, for example, okay, we have the projectionist, right? Why was there no comparison to him to, to Oz? Like, he's a projectionist. That's literally what Oz does. Like, like things like that could have been woven in subtly but you know kind of giving us a teeny bit more wizard of oz to, to kind of make it a theme throughout it because it seems like it was this idea and it made for some great images and ideas at the beginning of the film and then they kind of just dropped it it was like hey this will be a cool iconic image to put in our trailer and then after 30 minutes we're going to stop using this metaphor and i feel like it's kind of a metaphor they could have played with longer and it would have worked better for me, or they could have 
maybe just trimmed it back more and again let this stand on its own a little bit more. Yeah, I I think I can give you a credit there. I I think I saw the Oz storyline pretty quickly just with how they set up the the cinematography of the film. But again, there were a lot of distractions here and there that kind of made you kind of tilt your head and say, is this what's going on? Is something else happening? Yeah. Yeah, I just feel like it would have been really interesting to see it played up a teeny bit more. Again, I, I do want it to still have its own life and not just be like, hey, this is a weird horror pastiche of Wizard of Oz. I just wanted, if they're going to play with this metaphor, for them to explore it more consistently. So that way it feels justified for when it is there in space. Definitely, yeah. Um, um, finally, I think the whole dancing subplot that we had could have been used a little bit more. The agreed. whole dancing world is very twisted and macabre, <laughs> um, especially in this time period. Um, that is a whole horror movie in and of itself uh, between the, the racism and the, the sexism and all of that body shaming. Uh, it would have, I think, enhanced the horror to some extent. Yeah, well, and also, like, it, it did feel almost kind of like a weird aside for that they, they kind of introduced, like, maybe a third of the way through the movie, and she's like, oh, yeah, I'm also a, a wonderful dancer, and I love dancing, and that's going to be my ticket out of here. And you're like, okay, why haven't we seen you dancing at any other times other than with the Scarecrow? Like, it just seems like she she's claiming it's such a big part of her identity, and then she almost never does it in the film. And so I, I, I either wanted more of it, or, or maybe for it to hang a lantern on this idea that, like, no, no one sees her dance ever. That's a thing she can do? Is, or is this the, the weird obsession of the week? Yeah, you know, uh, I agree. Yeah, I just feel like it would have paid off more if they had played with it more. Especially if, if, if yeah, at least in her mind, we see her at more as this just goddess of dance, and then re- regardless of that, she still loses. But, you know, she's like, yeah, she was a passable. Alright. Um, we move on to ratings? Yeah, I think so. Um, for Screams, I, I gave it a 5. There were some moments that really kind of stuck with me, especially that end smile. It was just such a, a twisted way to end a film that you know, I was looking at Mia Goth's creepy smile for so long, I'd close my eyes and I'd see her in the darkness. <laughs> um, it, it stuck with me, so I gave it a five, as far as screams. Uh, I just gave it a three. I feel like there were some really strong moments, but I don't really feel like I, I, I ever felt fear as much as, as much as I just went, huh, interesting. Okay, yeah, I guess this is the point that she's going to kill someone now. Interesting. So, I don't know. It, there, there are scares there. It's just they didn't necessarily land for how my brain works. Sure, sure. All right, as far as crowns go, I really love this film. I gave it an 8. Um, I think it was a sleeper hit of 2022. I know a lot of people enjoyed it, but I think other horror films were more popular and kind of... Yeah, it's, yeah it, it's a24 it's a little bit more 
kind of psychologically twisted and A24 has a very specific brand that they love to do and I think sometimes think they're a little haughty or over sophisticated uh, which is very fair A24 we love you but calm down sometimes yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah I, I wish it just was a little bit more, more known it, it, it was a slam dunk for me uh, I'm gonna give it a seven and a half just because I feel like the the things that work really works. You know, we I mean we talked about those at length already. I just feel like you know in terms of like interesting themes and how I played with them, it was really constructed, really acted, beautiful, beautiful shot. I really like this movie a lot. Um, there's you know some ways that I I I don't know. I just I wanted it to just be. A teeny bit better in these like little places, and if it had been better, it would have been a freaking nine or ten. Like, it was good, but the seams showed a little bit too much. Yeah, totally fair. So, Matt, how are you staying? Oh, the true crime continues for me. <laughs> um, I have really been enjoying. True Crime. I talked a little bit on our last episode about the Morbid podcast. Elena and Ash, you are amazing and we're best friends. You just don't know it yet. Ah. Um, but I also started listening to the Elizabeth Smart story. I, I have been driving a lot for work down to South Salt Lake, which is about an hour on a good day and two hours on a bad day. So been having some audiobooks. I listened through her story, which was really compelling. You know, we all, of course, here in Utah grew up, well, millennials and, and Gen Zs, we grew up with the Elizabeth Smart kidnapping and how terrifying that was. Um, especially it was for you and me, like, in our backyard, which is wild. Yeah, and, uh, and she was like, all right. So. Exactly, yeah. Um, however, her uncle also wrote a book called Hiding in Plain Sight, which is really fascinating. You know, her biography and her telling of the story is incredible and very well done. Um, but she wrote it at a time where she was still very religious. So there's a lot of religious undertones to her narrative, which is absolutely fine. But I wanted something a little bit more um, secular and more about the investigation. Hmm. And that's where her uncle's book really is hitting the spot for me. He kind of takes apart not only the psychology of her captors, Brian David Mitchell and Wanda Barzi, and kind of what made them monsters, but also the utter shit show that the Salt Lake Police Department did and, and kind of the media there. And it, it's a little bit more about the case rather than, you know, how did I overcome this? Uh, both of which serve a wonderful purpose, not bashing on Elizabeth Smart's religion or her narrative or how she got through that horrendous story. I just am pulled a little bit more to the, the true crime elements of and, and, this other book. Yeah, yeah, definitely, you know, more more interested in the police procedural, uh, what makes a criminal do what they do, that kind of thing. Yeah, no, that, that absolutely. Yeah, so it it has been a little crazy. I'm starting to have very weird dreams and nightmares and i apologize to mark because i actually slept walk for the first time in a while yesterday and just apparently hovered over our bed on his side of the bed <laughs> and 
I didn't do anything. I was just chatting with him, but I can put myself in his spot of waking up and, you know, your partner is standing over you ominously in bed. Some, uh, some strong paranormal activity vibes. Yeah, definitely. So, highly recommend it. Uh, Crime Junkies interviews Elizabeth Smart. They have an amazing episode about it. Highly recommend her biography about the horrifying events and, again, hiding in plain sight. Great book so far. All right, awesome. Well, I am also uh, sticking to kind of more of the literary side of things in that I have an enormous book haul from StokerCon because, of course, I do. Uh, some of which were freebies, some of which were books I, you know, bought and, and aimlessly went up to the authors and went, can, can, can you sign this, please? I, I love your work. <laughs> sign, sign sign the thing, please. Please, um, please. <laughs> I, I really try not to be a weirdo or a creep when I do that, but uh, it depends. Sometimes um, creepers got a creep. Yeah, it's true. But... Uh, yeah, so I just finished reading The Paul Bearers Club by Paul Tremblay. That one was a, a, a good time. Uh, had some interesting twists and turns. Uh, not nearly as harrowing as uh, my favorite of his books, Cabin at the End of the World, but still uh, interesting and, and kind of more fun and, and lighthearted and punk, uh, which was uh, definitely up my alley. Uh, and then I'm just starting into Eric LaRocca's uh, Everything the Darkness Eats. But I've also got some other great stuff coming up to, to read, like some Darcy Coates. And uh, I don't know. I, I've got like a, a book pile, like seven, eight books high that I need to read through now <laughs> that I got back on. So that ought to last me like two weeks. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, you'll you'll finish it before I finish my book, because you read so damn fast. (laughs) Well, we are excited. We're coming up on our 100th episode. We have a really cool idea. We'll keep under wraps until the episode premieres. Um, But stick around. Scream Kings aren't going anywhere. So until then, stay spooky. Stay spooky. Need even more Scream Kings? Here's our obligatory shameless social media plug. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Scream Kings Pod. You could also email us at ScreamKingsPodcast at gmail.com. Help us reach a wider audience of horror fans by leaving a review on iTunes or by sharing a link on social media. You could also support the show by going to Patreon.com forward slash Scream Kings. Stay spooky.